Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with Bob Roth, an American transcendental meditation teacher and the CEO of the David Lynch Foundation. He's been practicing TM for nearly 50 years, teaching the likes of Tom Hanks, Oprah Winfrey and Hugh Jackman how to meditate. They're famous, so bear that in mind. Listen to shout outs. Here's some of your listener shout-outs. Alex says, thank you for the Chris Hedges episode on censorship. It was nice hearing him on your... Then the last bit's been redacted. Josh says, the Michael Singer episode was a banger. I was only chatting to a friend about some stuff and mentioned Untethered Soul, and then bam, you drop the next day. I know, Josh. It makes you think we're in tune with the universe, eh? Kirsten says, I listened to this one the other day, went out for a walk. I'm so glad I did. I knew nothing of Michael Singer, but after hearing this, I want to know more. Fabulous conversation, and it's one that I needed to hear. I'm recording this while on tour in Cornwall and Devon. These shows are sold out. But if you're in the UK, you can come to Blackpool on the 23rd of May and see me there. There's only a handful of tickets. Get them on russellbrand.com. If you're not a subscriber to my mailing list yet, you bloody well should be because I'm doing this thing on July the 10th where it's a one-off day with Wim Hof and we're only going to give it to people that register at the link that's on my uh, mailing list. Go to russellbrand.com and register for that as well. And also sign up to my Awakening channel where I do loads of meditation stuff. Furthermore, you should be listening to Above the Noise also on Luminary where I do meditations every week, including this week, one with Bob Roth. Now, here is Bob Roth on Under the Skin. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not a successful route. Yes, that's that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? Welcome to Russell Brand. Under the Skin. Hey, Bob, thanks for joining me on Under the Skin. How have you been? I've been very good, Russell. It's nice to talk to you. Are you wearing those cans purely as a sort of a visual apparatus at this point? Am I wearing these things? Yeah. like they, yeah, yeah, it's just for the look. Well, it does make you look very professional, but knowing that there's no sound coming through that makes me suspect you might be <laughs> mentally <laughs> ill. Yeah, but it's very good. I can hear you from my computer, but this looks more professional. What have you got the other end plugged into? Don't answer, Bob. I don't want to even know. Bob, I refer to you pretty frequently, like, you know, when I talk about my meditation teacher, often when I'm doing guided meditations, which I'm, let's face it, not qualified to do, or when I, whether that's in front of a live audience or on my podcast, Above the Noise, I say, my meditation teacher says... We make no effort. My meditation teacher says, sometimes I give you a name check, Bob, but I don't like to cheapen the meditation by saying the words, Bob. (laughs) (laughs) In two words, you've in two words, you've absolutely dropped in the estimation of your audience. They'll heal that. Oh, that guy. Some of them have search engines, Bob, and they'll they'll put Bob Roth into a search engine. And the simple truth is your face will come up at some point. And and who needs to deal with that? Certainly not me. Bob, how's it going in, I suppose when I ask you how it's going, what I mean by that is, how is your work with the David Lynch Foundation going? How is your mission to spread transcendental meditation to as many people as possible going? How is your endeavor to see that as many people can be freely taught TM as possible going? How is your belief and the Maharishi's belief that uh, that if enough people learn to meditate, the world will change, consciousness will change? How does your work relate to the geopolitical issues of the day, the war in Ukraine, the horrors of the pandemic? Do we need to meditate now more than ever have you noticed more people are interested in meditation tell us it all bob and for god's sake plug your headphones in so we're going to start with the first question my favorite color is blue good good let me write that down bob because i don't want to miss any of this no um what we're doing with the david lynch foundation is doing right now is in the process of um 
a stat of conducting or funding uh, large-scale what they call phase three clinical trials on the effects of transcendental meditation on trauma, the effects of transcendental meditation on uh, burnout, depression, anxiety, and resilience, and the effects of TM on heart disease, particularly high blood pressure, with the purpose of having TM uh, covered, adopted and covered by the Medicare and the private insurance companies. So it would be treated as any other medical, uh, health, medical or healthcare intervention, which would then bring the meditation to hundreds of millions of people in the US without any concern about you know, having to pay for it or anything. There would be no barrier to a person learning. And that's going really well. We're working with the Veterans Administration on, on, the, uh, on the PTSD study. And I'll just say one thing and then I'll stop. We're living in a pandemic of trauma and toxic stress and the conventional approaches of pop this pill. And I got nothing against legitimate medications for anxiety and depression if people need them or bipolar disorder, those are fine. But um, we need to have, we need to expand our understanding of what a medical intervention would be to include things like transcendental meditation. So I'm, this is, is, I've been teaching for 50 years. I feel like we're right at the precipice of something really big happening at a very good time in the world. That's fascinating you say that because obviously people that ha uh, glean their understanding of reality from rational and material means would probably judge that we're in a place of crisis, in a place of globalized trauma, in a sort of a, as you've explained it to me before, the, a Kali, an age of darkness, a, a Kali Yuga, a time Kali, of- uh, Kali Yuga, Kali Yuga. Thank Kali you, sir. Yuga. A time of uh, doubt and um, uh, uncertainty. And, and obviously this is something we'll talk about in greater depth as we go on, dear Bob. But what I wanted to pick up on there, because you know, when you talk about sort of uh, the impact of TM on potentially on um, observable cardiovascular conditions or heart conditions, that sort of like is interesting to me. But when you say something a little more potentially abstract, like, um, you know, burnout or in particular trauma, how does that tally with the idea of samskaras and trauma? What kind of translation would you use between modern terms like trauma PTSD and Vedic terms like samskara? What corollary do you see between those just terms? different vocabulary? It's the same exact same experience. Exact, there, there is no barrier. There's no wall between mind and body. It's not like, oh, I have a mental, uh, I have a very traumatic experience in my mind. I see something horrible and then I'm in a room and then I have to open the door to go into my body. It's a continuum. So if you're talking about, you can talk about the neurophysiology of higher states of consciousness. You can talk about the neurophysiology of spirituality. You can look at it from either side. You can look at it from transcendent experiences of ananda, of bliss consciousness. What does that mean? And ananda? That, ananda, bliss consciousness. Ananda, yeah, ananda is bliss. So, um, so you have, it's called, or brahmi chaitna, any of the words you want to use, or you could use the term restful alertness. It doesn't matter. It's the exact same experience with a different vocabulary. So sanskaras are impressions. Traumatic experiences in the brain and the associated, um, you could say, diseased or, or dysfunctional um, uh, metabolic pat patterns and um, uh, brain, uh, what's the word? Come on, come on, come on. Um, Neuropathways, neuropathways, same thing, same thing. There's no difference, just vocabulary. 
I'm always fascinated when we find that these um, distinctions are, you know, superficial or at least pertain only to semantics and signifiers. That the that that this is an indication of the depth of wisdom that is contained in that literature, preempting as it does knowledge that doesn't become materially and rationally available for several thousand years. Does that not give you cause for concern in that the advance of transcendental meditation requires a kind of yielding to the vocabulary and potentially even the ideologies of, you know, sort of rationalism in this case, mm. in the form of medicine? But no, actually the opposite, because what it does is it opens a person to the experience and the relevance of these um, eternal phrases, whether it's from the Vedic literature, or from Buddhist literature, or from Christian tradition, whatever. So actually it makes more relevant these words and more meaningful these words than, than otherwise. Because otherwise it's just words. You hear Brahmi Chaitna or you hear, you know, um, Turiyatit, fourth major state, Turiyatit is fourth state of consciousness. What does it mean? Hmm. But if you have an experience of that transcendence and then you also, you, and you use language that is familiar to a person, you say, oh, that's uh, a hypometabolic state or restful alertness. And then you hear, oh, in the ancient times, they talked about that as Brahman consciousness or, Brahmi, or bliss consciousness. And here are the descriptions of it, infinite, unbounded, eternal, universal. Suddenly, it's much more relevant. Adam, I, think the, I think the modern science, <laughs> modern medicine, those terms can open the door to those deeper levels of life. And I should say, no, no less, um, re, no less equally scientific, but also cosmic, spiritual as well. There's not a difference. There's not a difference. It's uh -oh. one continuum of life. I know that the Maharishi was particularly keen that the language of meditation, transcendental meditation in particular, was couched in sort of scientific and, and perhaps especially secular terms, presumably to make it more broadly appealing because of the ultimate goals that I've touched upon already of getting as many people meditating as possible in order to change reality. Bob, what do you think when you hear now that in like, you know, that beneath the uh, the quarks, the bosons, and the is it Liptons? The the best theories that we have is that there's a kind of a quantum field which contains all of um, you know all material reality, i.e. that there is a kind of uh, omnipotent field that contains all reality. Do you think that's another example of how sort of Vedic philosophy and scripture preempts ongoing scientific discovery? I think it can be a guide. I think we have to be careful, though, because um, th you're talking about unified field theories. And so we can't exactly say, and I, uh, from what I've read, which has been a lot, um, that s modern science has discovered this unified field, this idea that underlying all forms and phenomena, all you know, uh, matter fields and force fields in, in the universe is an underlying universal field from which everything emerges. That is one of several theories and uh, probably the most advanced theory. The way I like to say it is what modern science is glimpsing today as the underlying reality of life that Einstein in the latter years of his life was looking for, this unified field theory, has been known for thousands and thousands of years from these ancient meditative traditions, ancient traditions of, of consciousness that described a unified field of consciousness, which was at the basis of all the forms and phenomena in, in, in nature. But here's the difference. If you talk to a physicist, the physicist will say, 
we will never be able to access that power of the unified field. You could never build a linear accelerator. You could never build an instrument large enough to be able to access that energy, power, intelligence of the unified field, like we can access the electromagnetic field or gravitational field. But those same people would say the human brain and nervous system is that most sophisticated instrument in, in the universe that can experience that subjectively in the depths of meditation. So That's rather cool. than building some instrument outside to try and find the deepest level of nature's functioning, hmm. the, ancient, the ancients would say the deepest level of human nature and the deepest level of nature's nature are one. And you can access that during meditation. When you say these kind of things, Bob, and they... <laughs> Does wish... your mother know you're saying these <laughs> Has your, have your parents any idea, Bob, that you're out here saying that Russell the nature... and I have known each other for a very long time. <laughs> Do you? And they must be absolutely disgusted to hear you describe the nature of reality and the nature of consciousness as potentially one unified oneness bob yes. bob i wanted to ask you like it's because it's going through the media of uh language um i wonder what it experientially though do you some because when i've done this course right i've done a course i know quite a lot of stuff i've done a course and on the course when it was talking about yoga and ancient traditions i was thinking how's this helping me right now how's this helping me right now do you have experiences in your meditation after 50 years of meditating that help you to appreciate empirically that the rishis, the sages, the saints and the mystics may access through consciousness great troves of wisdom that through material and mechanical means might take instruments beyond our conception but are already deliverable in this sort of ulterior realm. Do you sort of personally have experiences of that? Do you have experiences where you feel, oh my God, I understand it, I feel it, I feel it, I know it. Do you have that happen, Bob? Yes, the thing that, that Maharishi talked about, though, when he talked about experience of so-called higher states of consciousness, beyond waking, dreaming, and sleeping state of con and even consciousness, and even beyond the meditative state, they call cosmic consciousness, God consciousness, and unity consciousness. He said these states of consciousness are not out there. These states of consciousness are everyday living realities, practical everyday living realities. So it is, you have your two beautiful young daughters. So Russell Brand in higher state of consciousness is actually appreciating and loving his two daughters million times more than he was when he just woke up cranky in waking state. So it's really a value of wakefulness, of appreciation and love that develops and unity, the experience of uh, non-dual nature of existence. So that's what I find. If one were to sit down and, and read the, the Vedic literature and, or, or read the Talmud or read any of these different traditions, then those descriptions and insights resonate with me. I think, I think to myself, oh, I know what he's talking about. I know what she's talking about. But for everyday living reality, it's just more appreciation, more love, more wakefulness, and more uh, rooted in my own self. Sometimes, Bob, I can't access those states. Sometimes even with my beautiful children, I feel like, oh, shut up. You know what I mean? Like I'm completely dominated by some 
inner web of tyranny that prevents me experiencing and enjoying that that deeper reality, even though I'm meditating, as you instructed, as frequently as I can. I want some sort of refund. I want my money back. <laughs> Since I taught you for free. <laughs> I already have it. Russell, I've known you for 10, the, the growth that you've gone through. And for you, everybody has their, you know, baggage to carry. We, when we are born on earth, you know, we born, we have a suitcases of karma that we have to work out. And some are big things and some are little things. And I would like to say to your audience, that uh, there's been huge transformations in you in the past 10 years. I'm not saying it's all due to meditation. Of course, you're a true seeker, you know, this, this podcast that you're doing, but huge maturing and changes that have taken place. And that experience that you're, you're wanting or that I'm wanting on a regular basis, you know, if you read about them, they're experiences that were done in the Himalayas or the, you know, <laughs> the Alps when it was a much less stressful time, this is a turbulent time we're in right now. This is not a time to say, oh, I'm going to cognize the deepest truths of reality while living outside of London or while living in Manhattan. This is just enough that our meditation practice keeps our head above water and allows us to be less reactive and to be more resilient. So if you're on a boat and you're sailing across the Atlantic and sometimes you're just skipping right along, it's clear skies, nice wind, calm waters. But I think we're going through the Straits of Magellan here. I mean, this is tough times. And it influences your, your physiology and your nervous system and your meditation experiences. So again, I suppose you're reiterating the idea that what is significant about meditative practice, and, I, and I'll um, clarify that when you're referring to meditation, you're referring specifically to transcendental yeah. meditation, yeah. is that how it affects the rest of your life how it affects you as a, a, a parent or as a, a wife or a partner or whatever. That is what's significant, the time when you're not on the mat, the time when you're not on the cushion, the time when you're in the world. Because you know me, I'm always after having some sort of lovely little experience. I'm, you know, as much as I'm a seeker after truth, I'm a seeker after pleasure. And like I'm, this Epicureanism sometimes leads me to approach meditation as a kind of treat or retreat you know like I want to feel that and god when it happens I love it so much I love it when I feel that release of self when when my yeah, meditative yeah, practice yeah. is not just I'm sitting here thinking I'm thinking I'm aware of my body right now focus on the sound oh, I listen to those birds go back to the mantra by the way Bob sometimes I do different mantras is that allowed or have I got to stay with the same mantra for the rest of my life like some kind of schmo I like saying sometimes chit shakti in there rather than my private TM mantra that you gave me sometimes I like go chit shakti chit shakti Consciousness energy, consciousness energy, chit shakti, chit shakti. You can do any, anything you want after your 20 minutes and you've taken the time to come out. Do anything you want. During the meditation, that mantra that I gave you is perfect for the transcending process, for diving within. Because, because on a deeper level, just like the, in nature, if you go from the you know, material surface to the molecular, to the atomic, to the subatomic, more powerful at deeper levels of nature, nature... And so deeper levels of the mind, more powerful. The mantra that I gave you is good and life-supporting on the surface, but also at these deeper, more powerful levels. After you're done meditating, do anything you want. When you say, you know, it's just enough to keep your head above the water in these turbulent times, 
I don't want that, as you know. I want sainthood. I want canonization. I want access to the limitless realms. <laughs> I, I want to be reincarnated right now. I can't even wait till I'm dead. You know, like, so that's why I'm so interested in that stuff, which I know is an appetite. I know. <laughs> and the thing is, every time one of your kids gets to you, or does something, then what that does is it impacts, there's a sanskar, there's an impression in your nervous system. Uh -huh. So if, you're, if you don't get enough sleep, your consciousness is dull and, and, and fuzzy. Yes. If you sleep really well, your consciousness is brighter. Yes. So yeah. mind and body, consciousness and nervous system, consciousness and brain, one continuum. So if there is stress or trauma in your nervous system from your past, this life, then when you sit to meditate, it's a, it's a two-pronged process. The mind is being drawn inward towards those quieter levels of, you know, towards bliss consciousness. At the same time, your body is taking a deep state of rest. The nature of the mind is to seek happiness. The nature of the body, given the opportunity, given a state of rest, is to heal itself. So when you're talking about you're frustrated in your meditation because you have all these thoughts or blah, 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 your, your body's working hard to heal itself so that you can sustain pure consciousness, so you can sustain the transcendent. It's not that it's um, some, you know, you're being punished. It's just that if you don't sleep well at night, you don't have a good waking state of consciousness in the morning. If, you're, if you have some trauma or stress from your past, then that's going to influence your experience of the inner unbounded reality. So you're cleaning that stuff up as you go along. So yeah, I think that's one, of, that's one of the greatest things about you is you want it now, I want infinite now, I want enlightenment now. Stay with that and keep determined, you know, keep going. What do the Japanese proverb says? Uh, Fall down seven times, stand up eight. Just keep going. Bob you're Rob, on the right path. Yes, sir. Bob Roth, um, why would the body heal itself more just because I'm saying a mantra given to me, passed down through the sages, through the ages, than it would if I was just sitting there doing nothing. Why would it do that? Why? I'm all watching TV. All right, I can get it. If watching TV, there's a stimulant, my nervous system is engaged, I'm watching things, things are going in my brain, I'm thinking, I get it. But what if I'm just sitting down doing nothing and I'm not thinking a mantra? Why would my body not take that exact same opportunity to heal itself then? Because... What you're doing is, I mean, and if I may cite the research, the research, the huge difference for any No research, Bob. Sit... This has all got to be mumbo jumbo, please. Uh, only, uh, <laughs> only bunk, bunkum, and made up stuff. Junk science. <laughs> junk science, please. We're going for junk science. <laughs> no, the fact is, I'm not even talking about TM. If you sit and just close your eyes, eyes closed, rest, there's a certain degree of relaxation that your body gains, a certain degree. Um, and and your, the electrical activity in the brain changes slightly. Basically, you're in what's called beta, beta brain waves, which are 20 to, I don't know, 13 to 30 cycles per second. When, so that's just sitting with your eyes closed and your mind just wandering, rambling about. Mm. What we're doing with we, when we transcend is we are sitting and thinking a sound that, number one, has no meaning. It's important that the mantra in TM has no meaning. I use that, you've heard me use this before, the analogy of a cross-section of the ocean. Choppy waves on the surface, silent at its depth. So the surface nature of the mind, active, churning, gotta, 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 gotta. So that's just your mind going crazy. And, and someone telling you to stop thinking, don't think anymore, clear your mind of thoughts, is actually close to impossible. 
because the mind likes to think. That's what it does. It thinks, just like everything in the universe is constantly moving. So you get a mantra, you get a, I give you a sound, or a TM teacher gives you a sound, that number one has no meaning. So now your mind is involved in thinking, but it's not involved in any content with the mantra. That's number one. Number two, the way you think the mantra, how do I tell you to do it? Easy, easy, easy. You know, your TM teacher will explain it properly. So now you're not individually forcing anything. So now your mind is engaged, it's involved, but not on the level of meaning. You're doing something. And what that does, that, that sort of abstract state where you're not directed in any particular way, it allows your mind to be drawn inward. There's a vertical dimension to your mind. Again, think of the ocean. We feel things deeply. We love deeply. We hurt deeply. We have an intuition, which is a subtle level of thinking. If, you, if you, someone offers you a, a new a possibility for a podcast, and it makes perfectly good sense on the surface, but then deep inside on your level of intuition, you go, I don't think so. Why? Doesn't feel right. So there's a vertical dimension to the mind. And even deeper than intuition, and you have a good intuition, even deeper than intuition, the hypothesis is, there's a transcendent level of your mind, infinite, unbounded, pure consciousness, your innermost self. We've lost access to that. And you can't access that by forcing, by concentrating, by visualizing. You can only set up that through, through engaging your mind in a way that is easy and tender and gentle. That's why I always tell you with meditation, be gentle with yourself. Be e Don't beat yourself up. Be tender with yourself. Because in that tenderness, your attention can be drawn inward to these deeper levels. So to answer your question after all that rigmarole, you're not just sitting doing nothing. You're actually allowing your active thinking mind to to settle inward, to quieter levels of thinking, quieter levels. And that shows up because your body gains this profound state of rest and relaxation. Thank that, you. That is beautifully described and explained. Thank you. Okay. Do you think that the Kali Yoga is like a, when a population of human beings find this transcendental realm inaccessible because of I don't know, external stimulants, fluctuations, because of forces that are beyond description? But do you think a lack of ability to access this transcendent realm is actually what's being discussed in this lightless time? Where yeah. light is continually used as a sort of a metaphor for consciousness across cultures. Do you think that, um, yeah, you reckon that? Well, first of all, there are, according to the ancient Vedic tradition, and I should say Veda, Vedic knowledge, Veda means knowledge, and it actually predates Buddhism, Hinduism. It's just, a, it goes way, way, way back. And it, it, there you have Ayurveda, which is the science of healthcare, and Stipacha which is the science of green architecture. I mean, green, yeah, and you have Vedic organic agriculture. So it's just sort of science and of life in accordance with natural law. Yoga is part of that. But from this tradition, they say there's four ages. Kali Yuga is dark age. Then there is Treta Yuga, which is a little bit brighter. Dwarpa Yuga, a little bit brighter. And then Sat Yuga, like Sat Chit Ananda, Sat Yuga, which is the golden age. Right now, we are in, they say, Kali Yuga. It's, it's like 
dark. Satyuga, the golden age, would be like the sun, full, full sun, noontime, right overhead. And then it just becomes like, you know, just in a, the cycle of the sun. Kali Yuga is pitch black. This is a time when materialism and glitter, baubles, money, fame, power, pleasure, anything outside is what dominates. Inside is not a very alluring. So Kali Yuga is not very alluring. However, the way Maharshi described it is, it's dark outside, but actually this is a good time to get enlightened because you can turn on the light inside. Because human beings want light. And so you learn to meditate, and then you, you turn on the light inside, and then it spreads that way. So you can actually transform Kali Yuga, the Dark Age, into the Sat Yuga, the Golden Age, through everybody meditating, turning on the light within, light, turning on the light in the house. I wonder what it is they're describing, given if, the, if what we're talking about is oneness and the infinite, as well as kind of cultural guides and mechanics to help one, you know, a, sub, a subject cope in this world. I wonder in particular where this Kali Yuga is taking place. You know, that's just sometimes what I wonder. What is it that they are describing? Are they describing, you know, trash cans tipped over in the street, graffiti and mad demagogues? Or are they describing some sort of subtler uh, shift which would, of course, result in the uh, expressions that lead to these sort of these outer phenomena? But, yeah, what is the noumenon? That, that, that description, it's a deeper mm. level. Mm a lack of connection on a deeper level. And then the sort of the, it, it, life is a constant battle between, you know, balance, between um, light and dark. And this is, we're just constant inside, outside. It's a constant duality, you know, balance. And what you really need to do is transcend them both and get to that field which is beyond duality. And that's that Advaitist tradition. You know, um, I wonder, Bob, like, I think you once described the more blissful age, the golden noon light of oneness. Uh, and I feel like when you described it, it sounded like a Walt Disney kind of Francis of a CC. The birds are landing on your fingers. The tree, <laughs> the trees are chatting. Brother, to you. sun, sister, moon. Were you All even born when brother, sun, sister, moon came out? I do. I yeah, I, I've heard those references, but I don't know the cultural artifact that they come from. It's like I know things like Poindexter, but I don't know why people are saying it. I know, oh, you're Poindexter. I don't hear what they, you know. I don't know what they mean by it. I don't know that you know Walter Klondike. All these things that I might hear. I don't know what it means, but I don't know if you're American culture or folk culture. My guess would be you as a Barclay man that that you're referring to some sort of folkish little strumming a guitar no, thing. No, no, no. It was really, it was like hippy dippy. The ultimate hit, Brother, Son, Sister Moon was about, it was like in 1971. Or, it was the ultimate hippy dippy flower child sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, of, of St. Francis of Assisi. Yeah, I get that St. Francis of Assisi vibe. Now, like, um, so... Bob, when people sometimes describe um, psychedelic visions, journeys, experiences, and they talk about these, like, you know, kind of, I don't know, ecstatic, almost animated, 
glorious inner states. You're a little bit ascetic, I must say, about that stuff, Bob. You know, because like, you know, sometimes I'd love to go blasting off into a glorious realm of DMT wonder and meet Faberge eggs of pure consciousness, vibrating new forms into being, and meet a bunch of Harlequins and meet Christ and the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and the Buddha, and just have a chat with those guys, which all seems to be freely available in the wonderful world of DMT. But you seem to think of that as some sort of a trashy inner Disney world. What do you make uh, <laughs> of these um, states? And what do you think people are describing? Why do you think there's a uniformity of experience, i.e. some sort of um, archetypal experience that people are accessing through psychedelics? And from the perspective of your rather astringent meditation, and I'm gleaning this primarily from a time when me and you were meditating, and I go, sometimes I think I'm meeting aliens and that. And you go, never mind that. You said, just keep going, keep going towards the bliss. Like, you know, you don't, like, don't stop off. You said, look at these trees. They're wonderful. We're only discussing novelty. Look at the table. Look at the can. Look at everything. And I do sometimes think, wow, this microphone's made of molecules. These vibrations are wonderful. What do you think people are describing in the psychedelic state? Uh, you know, obviously the time of the Maharishi made his impact in countries like yours and ours. You know, it was like part of that experience, typified, centralized around the, the, the quartet of the Beatles. And do you think these things are co-committant, this inner experience that can be brought on by hallucinogens? Do you think there's any kind of glorying in these psychedelic states that can be done or celebration of the rather more Rococo experience, spiritual experiences that seem to be available in there? Or do you think of it as like frippery, like some Victorian father slapping away at the ankle of a daughter making her way out into the streets of Whitechapel? Which is it, Bob? Because it can only be one of those two choices. <laughs> Okay, I was wondering where this whole sentence was going to end. Well, it's done now. I finished it. That was the end. You finished it with the father slapping the ankle. <laughs> Victorian, <laughs> yeah, Whitechapel, Jack no the Ripper. No idea where we're going. Jack the um, Ripper and all so that. So this, this is, for me, very a personal thing, so I can just answer from a personal standpoint. I um, feel like there are no... I don't know enough to pass judgment or to tell other... I don't tell other people what they should do. So they have to decide for themselves. For me, in my research, there's not enough long-term research on um, microdosing or psychedelics to know what are the long and short, what are the long-term effects of taking these things on the brain, on the central nervous system, on the body. I don't know, is there some subtle damage being done? Is on some subtle spiritual network? It's not fear-based. It's more like I'm not willing to go there, my pace of evolution with meditation, with transcendental meditation is so satisfying. If someone else wants to go there, they can go there. But I've done, talked to a lot of researchers and done a lot of research myself on it. And I'm just not satisfied that we know what are the long-term consequences on the nervous system, particularly the subtle values of the nervous system um, for a person's evolution and growth. I heard that Maharshi one time said, when you take those drugs, it's like trying to kick in the door to heaven. I, I like that, actually. Just sort of like, just kick down the door into heaven. And I personally feel like, well, I'll conclude this by saying, when I was a kid in college at Berkeley, I worked at a plant nursery. Mm, and there are two, there's a plant called an azalea, a flowering deciduous plant. We'd have two types of azaleas, one that would come in that had been force bloomed mm. in the greenhouse and it was absolutely gorgeous and all just beautiful, pink and just beautiful, force bloomed and it was that way for a month and then it just collapsed 
and it barely, I don't even think it ever blossomed again, but it was great for the moment. And then we had out in the, in the nursery out, outdoors, we had the regular azalea that you plant in your backyard that starts small and has flowers and every year it gets bigger and every year it gets bigger and it has flowers for several months and then they, they, it goes back dormant and it comes out again. And I see my meditation practice as the azalea that's outdoors, that's a natural growth process and not some forcing the thing. And I think that personally, I'm only talking for myself, is that using drugs uh, can be, could be like that for a lot of people. That said, I've seen that there's some new research coming out that, that microdosing can be helpful for deep depression, for post-traumatic stress disorder. I'm always in favor of doing more research and find out, we should find out, but it shouldn't be widespread until we know more. Okay, you square. So you don't like, <laughs> so you also, um, like, what about though, what about Bob? Like, what is going on in there? And, and how I'm going to, this is because I'm a professional interviewer, Bob, I've got some tricks and here they are. Um, like, see those inner psychedelic states. It's not so much that I'm, you know, thinking about. Did like, you ever take LSD or anything like that? Yeah, I did. I took a bunch when I was like between the ages around sort of 16 to when I stopped taking drugs when I was 27. And frankly, it was never good enough. It, like, but that that's what I would say of absolutely every single experience I've ever had. Like with LSD, I wanted more God. I wanted it more. I want more vivid God. And um, so, but what I like, so I found it disappointing. So when people are telling me this stuff about, I know there's something else in there. I know it. I know it and I want it. So like, um, I guess what I'm saying is, is like, whether it's through this realm of psychedelics or hallucinogens and stuff, or whether it's the CDs, these mystical powers attained by yogis. What yeah, about you? What about your teacher, the Maharishi? What about your teacher? Did like you know, like you know, sort of appearing in different places, offering like insights and wisdom that don't make rational sense, being able to read other people's thoughts, all this kind of stuff. I suppose, in a sense, what I'm interested in there is power I suppose is what I'm talking about but also to a degree I'm talking about escape and also I'm talking about like a one in a reassurance I suppose that there is a deeper reality that the reason yes. that this reality is sometimes so dissatisfying is precisely because there is some ulterior realm that we're hmm, very commas meant to have access to well there is there's a book called, called the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali Maharshi yeah. Patanjali was considered the great about 2500 years ago the greatest yogi and, and uh, of the time. And Patanjali, in his uh, Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, there's two parts to the book. The first book is a description of transcending, of, of meditation, of diving within and accessing that unified field of consciousness, which mm -hmm. is said to be a field of all possibilities and infinite creativity, infinite intelligence, infinite love, infinite happiness. That's the description, infinite power, Russell, infinite power. So it's there. The second half of Yoga Sutras of Patanjali are, are coming up with discussing techniques for once you've accessed that in your meditation, how to enliven that, how, how to wake that up, how to stir those areas. And so he has cities, either spelled S-I-D-D-H-I or S-I-D-H-I, which means perfection. There's city sutras stitching together different parts of consciousness, different parts of the brain. And so you have a city sutra for knowing the past. You have a city sutra for knowing the future. You have sutras for 
they call it divine hearing, divine sight, divine taste, divine smell, where whatever is the potential of the senses, you have them maximized. You also have um, for the heart, for compassion, for happiness, and even this levitation or yogic flying as it's called, all these things being performed from this deepest level of consciousness. And even the same, the term yogic flying, immediately people go, oh my God, my God, my God. But throughout time, throughout history, there have been records of people who have been able to control laws of nature, including yes. gravity. Whether we believe in them or not, Maharshi's comment was, we can be skeptical, we shouldn't be cynical. We can be skeptical, we can see if it works. We shouldn't be cynical and say, I'm not even gonna bother. But yes, to answer your question finally, there's realms within realms within realms within realms of consciousness, deep, profound levels of consciousness that we're just skipping on the very, very surface of right now. And meditation and the city program and these things do wake up those areas in a systematic way. And I will have to add, you'll be able to see the changes in the way your brain functions. If suddenly your, your sense of hearing is going to be profoundly enhanced, it's going to show up in the auditory cortex of your brain. It's not going to be disconnected. Hmm. And it's the same thing. If you're going to see things deep into things and really celestial vision, it's going to show up in the occipital lobe, lobe as well. So it's an exciting time when you can, you can look at the ancient wisdom, you can see its effects on, on human life, and then you can also document it. I think it's cool. Yeah, it's cool. Sometimes, Bob, I, one, you know, we have to take recourse to dear uh, Carl Jung and think, why is it that these archetypes recur? Why do we have these uh, image systems? Why do we, whether it's the Greek pantheon or the gods of the Vedic traditions or the miracles of the Old and New Testament, why does there seem to be this shared cultural heritage of great beings? Why do there seem to be like a <laughs> sort of an, an image, an image alphabet, a, gram a grammatical lexicon of lights in the sky, of sudden feats. Where is it coming from? Where is it in the shared imagination of our kind that these resources are drawn from? That was beautifully expressed, by What'd the way. What'd you expect? What'd you expect, Bob? I was, you think I you can come shocked. here and just make stuff up? You can come up I here know, and say I, loads was, of rubbish? So uh, James should transcribe that. That was really beautifully phrased. Well, well you're going to get two answers. Two answers in the podcast now. He's turned up. He's, this is only <laughs> second appearance. He's telling James he's only just started to work here. What to do? James has come here in good faith, and you're telling him what to do <laughs> with a pair of headphones that ain't even plugged in. <laughs> <laughs> I always love being with Russell. It's always like such a good laugh. A good laugh. <laughs> Um, you're going to get two different responses on this thing. Go on, then. One is the psychological, you know, and, and um, what you're talking about, Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell and archetypes and myths. And the other would say, people would say, well, that's a classic response of a person in Kali Yuga where it's all dark, but in Sat Yuga or in, you know, the Golden Age or in Tret Yuga, it's a different world, different beings, different, just everything different. And they would say 
you see more, you see, you see more. More is revealed, the inner workings of nature. You might not want to come on this speculative journey, but do you think literally, historically, there have been times, there have been golden ages? Do you think like, you know, Gotebi, you know that place they find in Turkey and all those, you know, those archaeological finds, the mysteries of the pyramids. Do you think these are historical archaeological reference to different forms of civilization, perhaps founded on the kind of wisdom that you and different I are discussing? Yugas, different yugas. Different Do you think yugas. so? So you don't think that it's just a couple of thousand years of, you know, like 10,000 years since agriculture, a couple of thousand years since the Bible, to a couple of hundred years since the Industrial Revolution. Do you think there are literal historic Anthropolog, you know, sort of human histories, civilized histories. I know it's not your area of expertise, just for a bit of a laugh. It's only a podcast. I mean, we're not at Harvard saying this, you know, write this down, kids. No, no, no. I'm just, <laughs> I'm going to give, I, I, I am profoundly fascinated by these uh, ancient records that sort of pop up, whether it's, it's Mayan civilization, what they have, or the, you know, the fact that they're, Pyramids appeared all over yeah. North America, Central America, all over the world around the same time. And how is communicate? How is there communication between them to be able to mm. um, reveal those? Or the fact that there was a, astrology and the sun god and everywhere. I, I just find it very fascinating. I don't have any conclusions. I'm just very fascinated by the thing, and I'm not sure that anybody can sort of say with. Def definitively that it's a yes or a no, I just find it very fascinating. Yeah, people, you see these sort of sweeping cultures, sweeping the world. We default to the no, though, don't, don't we? Yeah, because, we do. Because we do. the cynicism, like that cynicism against which the Maharishi advised is the de facto mentality of our time, the closed grip of, yeah. of scientific certainty is abound. The one of the other reasons I was talking about sort of the mystical experience in terms of, you know, psychedelics and plant medicines, not that it's really particularly where I want to dwell, is that most sort of ancient traditions are underwritten by sort of versions of shamanism. And you can kind of see that, you know, in the rise of shamanic figures like the Maharishi, even though or what you'd literally refer to him as a yogi, like the the, the, the figure of the shaman is a, a universal or at least global figure that sort of recurs. And I suppose, again, I'm interested in the way that these systems of knowledge find a kind of unity because unity I suppose I'm using to mean a kind of truth an incontrovertible truth that we have recourse to in this time of great uncertainty I think it's a it's a shared universal experience I think there's the universe you know true happiness lies within uh, kingdom of heaven what it, is it in Luke kingdom of heaven is not out there it's not out there it's not here or there it's within and then seek ye first Mark said seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and all else will be added unto thee. So that's you know the same thing of well you're gonna you're, son you gotta you're gonna if you're gonna be happy you gotta find your happiness within. Take two years off from college and then find yourself and then go get a job or something like that. But the idea that within that experience is universal and and you see it across culturally across religions wisdom traditions. I remember one time Maharshi was being asked by a reporter. He said, well, what is, your, um, what is your legacy going to be? And this was towards the end of Maharshi's life. And he said, you know, it's, it's the same legacy. You know, so Maharshi lived for 90 years. And then another generation, someone else is going to come along. Another generation, someone else is going to come along. And before that, there was somebody else. And before that, it's the same knowledge, just a human being, a human being comes along has that experience and gives voice to it in the language of the time. 
Yeah. He would yeah. say the language of 5,000 years ago, I mean, while it's interesting and, you know, that this happened to these people and they were run out of that, whatever, <laughs> he said, always it's reinvent, you, you need to say it in the language of the times. And so he would say, it's not me, it's just the knowledge that's getting a voice at different times. Did you go to the ashram? What was it like? There were many different, I mean, I first met Maharishi in, I started meditating in 1969 as an 18-year-old kid at Berkeley. And um, in 1970, I was in a group with, uh, a course with 2,000 people at Humboldt State College in, North Amer in Northern California, where uh, he came and it was fascinating because on one side, he had all these Nobel laureates in physics and biology and chemistry. And on the other side, he had all these spiritual leaders like a rabbi and an imam and a priest and like that. And they were just talking about the same shared experience, different language, but the same experience. Um, then I worked with, I was around him for a year and a half in the early mid-70s, and then off and on over time. I never was one who's, oh, I want to stay here and I want to be around Maharishi. And I always wanted to... Huh? Let me get this knowledge and let me go teach this. You didn't fetishize him. You didn't fetishize him. You didn't, what about no. when you first, you didn't. And he, no, that. and he didn't want any of that anyway. It, there, there's always some people anywhere. You know, you have people who are runners who become fanatical runners, people who are, you know, take some diet who become yeah. fanatical. But he was very cautious not to let that happen. He, he really didn't want anything like that to happen. He really wanted, uh, and I'll go back to the point you said earlier, he really emphasized the universality of the practice of transcending. He did not focus on the particular, oh, this was from India or this is from this, that's garb. Uh -huh. Just the universality of the practice that for every human being. So you use language that every human being can understand. And then that person grows into their own selves. When pe he was asked about religion, he'd say, follow your own religion. You know, yeah. meditate, follow your own religion. Hmm. Figure it out yourself. He didn't want anything to be, it's too superficial for him when he, in the way he was teaching. Yes, I suppose if what you're dealing with is the timeless and the limitless, the inflections and accents of a particular cultural time based as they are on meteorological conditions and arbitrary cultural mm, choices, they're, not, they're by their nature transient. And if you're dealing with timelessness, if you celebrate form, even if the paraphernalia yes. is, is glorious, yes. You've, yes. you've taken the wrong route already. Beautifully put. He never wanted to talk for people to talk about his individual experiences or the experiences of his teacher. He said, it's just too superficial. Just have that experience within. And the analogy that was used is you could have a whole uh, orchard of many, many, many different types of fruit trees that are all uh, drying up. There's been no water. And then you water the land, the soil. The apple tree becomes more of an apple tree. The plum tree, more of a plum tree. The, you know, the fig tree, more of a fig tree. It's not that everything becomes an apple tree or a bunion tree. Hmm. It just becomes more, more of what you are already. Then, sir, where does this leave morality and ethics? Where does this leave the practices uh, of our time? Where does it leave uh, sexuality, promiscuity? Where does it leave indulgence? Where does it leave violence and violation? From where do we draw ethics if truly what we're talking about is this, the, the nutrition that is applied rather than its expressions through botany or through behavior? Mm, because 
ethics and, and values and morality and non-reactivity is rooted in brain functioning. <laughs> That's what's so interesting. If a person is, um, so there's part of the brain called the amygdala, which is in the limbic system, which is your emotional center. And then you have, so that's in the deep in the deep in the center of the brain. And then you have the frontal lobes, which is the prefrontal cortex. And this is the higher brain. And this is the part of the brain that is rational, filter against impulsive decisions, judgment, planning, ethical reasoning. It's a higher brain. If you're stressed, if you've grown up in a very traumatic environment where your mother was beaten by her partner, intimate partner, or you're beaten, or you, you have violence in the neighborhood, then the natural balance, the proper communication between the amygdala, the fear center, the reactivity center, and the prefrontal cortex is broken down. What that means, Russell, is that somebody threatens you. You perceive something as a threat. That would go to the amygdala. The first thing it should do is have a check with your frontal lobe. Is that a real threat? No, 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 no. The guy's just in a bad mood. He's had a tough day. Don't, you know, don't overreact. Okay, no biggie. Huh. But if I'm stressed, if, if I'm stressed, then it skips that, and then I go right to fight or flight. So my point is, if you want to have ethics, if you want to have values, if you want to have these things, you have to have a healed brain. You'll, you can teach ethics all you want. But if you, don't, if you don't have a brain that's functioning in an integrated, balanced way, you'll never have those things. And that's what our research in the inner city school, can I say one more thing before Yeah, you... all right, all right, go on in. I understand, because right? I already understand, but like I have a quick understander. And also that's not really my question. My question is why ethics? Why morality? If the Shakti is neutral, if the- if it Ha, 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 because <laughs> we're all one. Because we are all one. Nice. Because if we're all one, anything that's an expression of division or separation, therefore violence or, or self-obsession, self-centeredness, then that is in denial of the truth of the oneness. Yes, yes, yes. But also yes, that other yes. stuff was good. But go on, tell me about these inner city schools where you're nice to no, children. No, I'm going to tell you what. They're all, they're <laughs> all different tell you in colors, so they've had a terrible time. Are you done? <laughs> all right. In Chicago, in the public schools, we did a pro 2,000 kids learn to meditate, teenagers, in the toughest, most violent schools in Chicago. The study was done there by the University of Chicago Crime Lab to see if meditating school kids, kids practicing TM, would have a reduced number of arrests for violent crime. Because if a 13-year-old kid gets arrested for violent crime, he's in the school-to-prison pipeline. He's done. Family is done. It's a wasted life and a weakened community. So that's one way of checking the effectiveness of TM. And does that mean that it's calming the amygdala? Yeah. So what the research, they compared it. They said, if you do an intervention to reduce arrests for violent crime and you get a 10% reduction in arrests for violent crime, it's a success. With these kids, who are meditating kids, within one year, 70% reduction in arrests for violent crime, seven zero. That is a profound result that has significant implications for society moving forward. 
Yeah, it's good. Uh, that's fantastic. Uh, it's, it's beautiful. It's good to see that there's a obviously a practical application. We're all living out here. We're all living in there and out here. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. I don't, firstly, I don't think you should have that pipeline. That should uh, they should remove that <laughs> straight away. I wish you were at Berkeley with me. That would have been great. <laughs> I don't think I'd have made it, Bob, with all that hate Ashbury acid. I'd have been out. No, that's San Francisco. Oh, Berkeley, a different place. Berkeley's across the bay. It's on Oakland, Berkeley, across the bay. Well, I've got one ferry trip and I can get free acid and a blowjob off a Grateful Dead groupie. <laughs> you won't see me for dust. <laughs> I was wondering how long it was going to take to get to that. But that <laughs> Forgive me, I'm an I'm a abstemious man myself nowadays. Um, so, Bob Roth, will you, is there my producer, James, who's uh, new to this and, uh, and uh, doing uh, gloriously well, it said, is I this, like James a lot. Yeah, he's by gorgeous. The way. He's got a good soul. You can look I in like his him. eyes. There's great light in him. There's no question about it. Yeah, he's really good. Really no, good. He's lovely, Bob. Not, he's not in court. I don't. He don't need a character witness. He's not in the. He's not in the pipeline. To, to I the, like to, to say, thank him. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm pleased for you. But like, he, well, therefore, he suggested James did that. Oh, you know, what about if we did a guided meditation? And I goes, well, you might not be able to do a guided meditation because the TM people are very, very stringent. <laughs> about who's allowed to do a meditation and you have to be taught one hour a day over four days and there's all sorts of stuff so but anyway i've passed it on bob you know do you want to do a guided meditation we can do a nice simple breathing meditation okay let's do breathing. that i love say you, hi to your mother for me and say hi to the three beautiful women in your life thank you bye-bye Thank you for listening to Under the Skin with Bob Roth. Please let me know what you think of it on Instagram. Tag me at Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets using the hashtag Under the Skin. If you enjoyed this conversation, you might like other episodes featuring Michael Singer. Amazing episode. We released it widely. It's fantastic. Also, we have a special bonus episode with Bob Roth taking us through guided breath meditation. So have a look at Above the Noise right now. And remember to sign up for the Awakening Side Channel where we talk about well-being and personal developmental matters continually so you can awaken and become the person you truly are and appreciate reality from another well, I don't know, not dimension, perspective. Thanks for listening to me on Under the Skin, only from Luminary.